And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. So last Tuesday on this very podcast, we got stuck into the chaos at Everton. And less than a week later, in fact, by Monday evening, Frank Lampard had lost his job. So who next as they look to appoint their eighth manager in seven years? And also from Lampard's point of view, is a worrying pattern emerging for him as a manager? I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. At the minute, we're in a tough time. It tests everybody at the club, and um, everybody has to try and stick together and move forward. And Tarkovsky gets back at him, but the ball is in via Jared Bowen again. Antonio managed to squeeze it across into his path. And Everton are two down here. Everton have indeed sacked Frank Lampard. We're going to get immediate reaction to that. Nobody knows a football club better than their own supporters. Their own supporters haven't got banners in the crowd for Frank Lampard. They've got them for Farhad Mashidi and the board. And I said on this programme about six months ago, 12, six to 12 months ago, Everton are the worst run club in the country. But I didn't think I was wrong when I said it then, and I'm not wrong when I said it now. So with us for this one, Everton correspondent for The Athletic, Paddy Boyland, and Chelsea correspondent, Liam Toomey. Here we go again, Paddy. <laughs> yep, we're back where we were 12 months ago in this in this cycle <laughs> of kind of constant churn that Everton are, are trying their best to kind of get out of kind of feels like we go round and round in circles and an appointment's made and there's initially some some hope, some kind of false hope potentially. Um, and then it all slowly unravels over the course of the, the ensuing 12 months. So yeah, back exactly where we were 12 months ago with Everton, right at the end of a transfer window, looking for a manager, looking for players, for whichever manager comes in. Uh, and it's all just an almighty mess. What was so different about the performance at West Ham that prompted them to act, as opposed to, say, losing at home to Southampton or being thrashed by Brighton? I don't actually think it was that different to anything we saw before. In essence, it was a typical performance from a Frank Lampard side. Everton dominated the ball, dominated a lot of the territory in the game, but were caught in those crucial moments in transition not being clinical enough at one end and getting caught on the break at the other. And I suppose that is what Lampard did at Chelsea. That's what he did in part at Everton. And I don't necessarily think it was all on the West Ham game. You have to look at this as an accumulation of results over an extended period of time. And ultimately, Lampard didn't win enough games. at The second worst record of any Everton manager in terms of win percentage. That only the only one worse was Mike Walker, who was sacked much earlier into a season than he was. 
And no, oh, and by and by the way, Mike, Mike Walker arrived with such promise. Yeah, but I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember that Mike Walker had done an unbelievable job at Norwich, Norwich and that uh, yeah, and that was seen as a really progressive appointment. Yeah, that, well, that's it, and I don't think there was quite the same level of excitement and anticipation around Lampard that that had been another kind of convoluted process that had twisted and turned. Really bizarre how it had all panned out. And I think fans just wanted somebody through the door by that point. But maybe that's why Everton keep on failing here. They keep on getting the processes wrong. The structures, the adequate structures haven't been in place for success. And whatever you can say about Lampard and his results, this does go beyond just him. When so many managers fail over such an extended period of time, you do have to ask questions about the decision-making higher up, whether the managers were the right fit or whether the conditions were right for success. In truth, it may well have been both. They, they haven't always appointed the right managers, but those managers haven't been given a fair crack of the whip, at least in the transfer market and everything else. So we're back where we were, but I don't think that's any surprise to anybody associated with Everton. We'll come more on to Everton in just a moment, but yesterday's podcast turned into an audience with James Horncastle and Tim Spears contributed about two things to it. So I'm conscious that I don't want this. I don't want this to be an audience. Much I'm enjoying listening to you, Paddy. I don't want it just to be an audience with Paddy and Liam chips in twice. So just just one on Lampard first of all. Here we'll come back to him as well later in more detail. Do you sense a pattern? Uh, Liam at all in Lampard's tenure at clubs do the spells all go a similar way I'm not sure I mean he wasn't at Derby for long enough for any real pattern to emerge and I think this, the circumstances at Chelsea and Everton are so different um, that it that it's quite difficult to, to draw those kind of broad trend lines but you know when Paddy was talking about the team not being good enough defensively being particularly open in transition um, to to being counterattacked, those were things that that became massive issues. Well, they were, I mean they were issues throughout Lampard's time at Chelsea, but they they eventually were the issues that I think undermined him most on the pitch. Um, in that he never got Chelsea to be a cohesive uh, defensive unit. There were too many individual mistakes, which maybe spoke to broader systemic issues. When you have that many players making regular individual errors and that seems to be I, I can't speak with the same authority on Everton I haven't been watching them every week like Paddy but from the highlights I've seen it seems like there's been a lot of individual errors leading to goals I think more broadly um, I had a quick look this morning at the other 19 Premier League clubs because I wanted to kind of satisfy uh, my own curiosity about how long it took each of those coaches to get their first Premier League job either to take a Premier League club or to get them promoted into the Premier League Um, and the average was six and a half years of senior coaching experience somewhere and I I felt this about Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa as well I just think it's really difficult to come into the Premier League where I think that the standard of coaching has never been higher than it is right now um, with with so little experience, even if you've had these amazing playing careers as, as Gerard has has as Lampard has, and you've played under so many top coaches, it's just such a different skill set. And I think there's the the base tactical level of the Premier League is so high now 
that it's it's really difficult to compete. The the one exception when I had a look was obviously Mikel Arteta, who's <laughs> giving the lie to all of this. But even he, you know, served a three year apprenticeship under the greatest coach of his generation. Um, so there, there's an argument maybe that Lampard and Gerrard both elevated themselves a little bit too quickly. Um, rather than maybe seeing a pattern between between Chelsea and Everton, because I just think e- e- Everton seems to be a, u- a pretty unique mess, irrespective of Lampard. It's a fascinating point, that, actually, because not only, Liam, is the, the, the tactical high bar, which, as you suggest, is, feels like it's never been higher, given some of the men who are coaching over here, but also the other demands have never been higher as well on, on a manager. You know, if you think of... They must do probably on average six press conferences a week, I would suggest, or six six to, you know, when you think about post-match interviews, pre-match interviews and, and everything that, that goes with it on the day, plus the day before every single game as well. So the demands elsewhere, and I think, I kind of think you probably need a bit of experience of, of dealing with that as well but otherwise it'll hit you like a train yeah I think that's fair I, I think it's also fair to say that that's probably one of the aspects that, that Lampard was always strongest at um, I think he's he's always carried himself really well in front of the media he's got plenty of experience in the media himself uh, as has Gerard and, and that kind of generation ready for my presentation <laughs> we do analysis too by the way as does every manager I you know I, I think aside from getting maybe a little bit emotional after defeats and saying things that he shouldn't I think Lampard has generally been very good at that side of the job uh, and and that's helped him actually build connections with fans at every club he's been at that's been another really strong part of, of what he's done I, I, I don't know maybe Paddy can can tell us how do how do Everton fans feel about Lampard at this stage because it didn't seem like they they turned on him. It seemed like they were much more broadly frustrated with with the club as a whole. Yeah, I, th- I think it was quite telling, actually. The game against Manchester United in the Cup earlier this month was kind of building some quarters as a must-win for him. And I don't think that was entirely correct. I don't think it was that was ever entirely correct. But what we found at the end of the game was that the fans had stuck with the players throughout. Lampard went over at the end and applauded them and they... They applauded back. And then more or less, as soon as he walked off, kind of banged under pressure, having lost another game, the chance started again, sack the board, sack the board. And I think that was quite clear for me. That was an indication that those supporters, a healthy proportion of the ones singing, had kind of turned their ire on other people. They saw this as something bigger than just Frank Lampard and whether he's good enough to manage Everton Football Club. On the kind of the tactical side, I think the really interesting thing here is that I was looking the other day at some of the clubs in and around Everton in the table. And you have Wolves, Aston Villa, West Ham with David Moyes. Now, Everton lost against West Ham and, and David Moyes on Saturday. And I was thinking, who is who has the most experience to draw on here out of Moyes and Lampard when it comes to a relegation battle? And that, that's obviously mm. an easy question to answer. But then I also took it on a step further. Wolves have hired Lopetegui, who who comes with a top reputation. Unai Emery has won European honours and has managed some of the top clubs in the world. And those two clubs, what unites both of them is that they acted early. 
they saw the opportunity around November time with the World Cup coming up to effectively wipe the slate clean and start again. They saw that there were options in the market, move for them quickly, and allowed those guys to bed in over the course of a six-week week period, which was the best time. It was a, effectively a mini pre-season again before the start of the Premier League. For them, for the players to get to grips with their methods, you then get the benefit of a January window in which the new manager can come in and say, I want, want to sign X, Y, and Z. And both of those managers, particularly Lopetegui, have been backed. And Lampard's not really had any of that. The kind of his the, the speculation around his future rumbled on. And I think Everton have got into this window of hardly any money, are mainly looking at loans. But I think it's a legitimate question for people who are speaking to the club, agents and players, potential targets, to ask, well, is Frank going to be the manager? What kind of manager am I playing under? What kind of style? Are we are we going to see on the pitch? And how do I fit into all of that? And I think Everton have complicated matters for themselves in allowing this to drag on further. And I com- compared them directly with with Wolves and Aston Villa there. Let's expand on that with Everton. We'll come back to Lampard and what next for him in just a moment. But the feeling, as we record this, is that Marcelo Bielsa is in pole position for this job at this early stage. So we asked our Leeds writer, Phil Hay, if the job might tempt Bielsa. The first thing to say about Marcelo Bielsa is that if you look at his CV and his resume of coaching jobs, there's a very clear trend to it. And virtually every job he has taken, really without fail, has been accepted and started during the summer months, um, essentially between seasons um, during the closed season, rather than mid-season and rather in circumstances where he is firefighting in the way that, that he would be at Everton. And there's a very good reason for that. It's that Bielsa likes to crack the whip through the weeks of the summer, likes to have open space, as he did at Leeds in 2018, to properly implement a, a very defined, very, very technical style of play um, also to give him the time to work on the fitness of the players, which is absolutely fundamental to the way that he wants to play. His teams need to be physically the fittest in the league. They need to be able to cover the most distances. Um, they need to be able to to essentially repeat his his style and his methods over and over again. And, and as Leeds found, it is extremely demanding to do that. Part of the reason that um, he, he seemed to get quite far down the line with the Bournemouth job prior to Christmas was essentially because this season, unlike most, offered the equivalent of a pre-season in the middle of it because of the World Cup break. Had he taken the job at Bournemouth when it was being discussed, he would have had the best part of five or six weeks to have coached the players, changed the style, to change the tactics, to have addressed their physique and to have analysed body fat and weight levels and, and everything else. And as he often said... At Leeds, five or six weeks was actually all he felt he needed initially. Um, he's certainly not a, a coach who's made a habit of parachuting into crisis clubs. And in fact, you would struggle to find one example of him doing that at all through his long career. So with, with Everton, I think, you know, the fervent support that they have would definitely appeal to him. And the reputation of the club would appeal to him. I think aspects of Liverpool as a city would appeal to him in the way that, that Leeds certainly did. It's very difficult to marry the state of Everton as they are now with Bielsa's ideals of project building and development. He's a coach who likes to look at the jobs that he takes as projects, even though some of them don't last as long as he would like or as long as intended. He likes to think of them as as long-term schemes, long-term development projects. That said, though, 
He has been out of the game for almost a year now. It was last February that, that he was sacked by Leeds. And, you know, people that he speaks to, people around him, have heard him say quite openly that he does want to get back into coaching, that he's very keen to, to be back in frontline management. Having assumed a lot of us in Leeds that, you know, Leeds United would be the only English club that he would manage because of the um, rapport that he built up with the supporters, because of the respect that he developed here. Actually, he has said to people that he would take a job with another English club um, and that he would come back to the Premier League. So I don't think you can discount the Everton job entirely, but it has to be said that him taking over in these circumstances would be a, a massive gear shift from the way that he's built his coaching career from, I guess, the attitude he's taken to, to job offers that he's had in the past. So on that basis, um, I would be sceptical. But as I said, I do think there is definitely Fireburn in there for another job in football. Bearing in mind your previous answer, Paddy, what I think ties in with what Phil said is that Bielsa always wants a proper pre-season. So if they'd wanted him and had really considered him, the World Cup would have given him some kind of pre-season, not with all of those Everton players, but with a majority of them. Yeah, I kind of think Everton are stuck between a rock and a hard place now. There's a discussion currently ongoing and I don't think there's been any kind of resolution as to what kind of manager they want. Do they want a a firefighter, in quotation marks, a a Sam Allardyce or a Sean Dyche type? Or do they want to go and almost continue with what Lampard did and just look to do it better, which is build from the ground up progressive style, younger players, etc. Now, Bielsa probably is in the latter, even though he's he's, he's 67 now. He, he's somebody that wants to take a project and build from the ground up. So I kind of understand it from that point of view. But I do have some concerns over what it would all mean and how it would all work. So, so for example, his style is so unique and so singular that I think you need to drill that into the players over an extended period of time. And that goes back to the point about a pre-season. Would he be able to do that at this juncture in the season with the players kind of under pressure in the way they are too and with the atmosphere around the club? I think that that's the first question. The other one for me is I looked back at his past clubs and he obviously did very well at Leeds for, for a long period of time completely revitalised them. So he is capable of that and he's held in high high esteem. But there are other examples, particularly Marseille, where he left one game into the season and and that, without knowing the full details of, of, of kind of what transpired behind the scenes. From the outside, that looked as though he was kind of effectively saying, I don't have the conditions here to do the job. I don't feel right. I think he's a guy that works on instinct he wants the right conditions and he's very demanding of the ownership and, and the board of directors and, and and wants them to kind of completely buy in and give them the resources. How would he cope with the situation that Lampard had or the situation even that Rafa Benitez had to be fair, where he's told, like in Rafa's case, you had 1.7 million to spend in the summer to rejuvenate the squad. How would he cope? kind of looking at Lampard's situation in January with its loans or loans with options and obligations. But but also, how would how would he cope? How would he cope if, I mean, this is what we are told, that Mashiri is not shy in offering an opinion mm. internally 
So how 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 would he? <laughs> I can't imagine that would go down particularly well either. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't strike me as a marriage made in heaven. I have to. I have to. I have to say. It, 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 I don't think Marcio Bielsa would want that at all. Maybe that's what Farhad Mashiri actually needs. Maybe that's what Everton's board of directors actually need. Maybe they need that strong presence that says, "No, I don't want any meddling." And football is run by footballing people only. That is probably what the football club needs, to, to to be honest. Going back to the point about tactics, I was just trying to imagine how a Marcelo Bielsa Everton would even look. And one of the things that struck me in Saturday's game against Wolves, I was I was watching James Tarkovsky trying to defend in the channel, the left channel against the pace of Antonio and Jared Bowen. And it was a car crash tactically. But Everton's defense is packed with kind of aging stalwarts, lads that can defend the edge of the penalty box well and will, will put themselves in the way and, and look to block things. How would a Connor Cody, James Tarkovsky and Idrissa Gay in midfield at 33 fit into this hyper-energetic Marcelo Bielsa style? Again, that comes back to the concerns over would he have the resources in place on and off the pitch to make this success? Now, like I say, there's no doubt that he's a good coach. And there's, a, there's no doubt that he's got top pedigree in the game. But that is the big question that Everton now have to answer. Who's leading the search? And secondly, you've already sort of mentioned this, but of all the leading names, the, you know, Bucky's favourites, they're all different. It's not like they all play a certain way or they are all exp- have expertise in certain areas. They're all, they're all completely different from... Daesh to Bielsa to Rooney to Ferg. I mean, do you have any idea what they want? Well, what that short list of names, however accurate, tells you is that there's no kind of coherent and consistent vision. It's not like with Brighton where they got rid of, where they lost, to be more accurate, Graham Potter, and then De Zerbi came in. And you could see that as a logical continuation what had gone before. Everton have lurched from Carlo Ancelotti to Rafa Benitez to Frank Lampard. And after Rafa Benitez went, they first looked at Roberto Martinez, but then ended up with a three-man shortlist when Martinez couldn't get out of the Belgium gig. They then ended up with a three-man shortlist, as you say, of Vitor Pereira, Frank Lampard and Duncan Ferguson. Now they are very different as coaches. And that shows you that at that point in time, when Everton didn't have a director of football in situ, a head of recruitment, and the club's board and owner, was kind of, they were running everything, that they, they were a bit of a mess. They didn't know which way they wanted to go. The fear looking at that short list of candidates compiled by the bookies is that it appears to be going the same way again. We have been told that the director of football, who is now in situ, Kevin Felwell, will control the process and will be involved in the process. But the boundaries start to get a bit blurry when you look at some of the most recent reporting on Bielsa and who's been speaking to Marcelo Bielsa. Now, they have had conversations with Bielsa and the owner has been involved in those conversations, Fahad Mashiri. So... The question is not whether Kevin Thelwell will be involved in some way in the process. It's whether his voice will be the one that wins out in this discussion. What they've promised to do over the last 12 months or so, following a strategic review into the footballing side of the the operation, 
is for decisions to be made by committee. So effectively, it's not just Farhad Mashiri saying, I want Ancelotti, or it's not just the board of directors saying, we want Frank Lampard. It's we all sit down around a table, we can suggest candidates, and we can kind of thrash it out. And whoever's the most popular candidate kind of wins, whether you think that's the right way or not. So we're still waiting to see who the telling voice in the room will be. My fear is that if it is the same people as in the past, that the chances of them getting getting it wrong kind of skyrocket again. What the hell's the point of having a director of football if you don't trust their judgment? Well, that's the question we've been asking now more or less since Farhad Mashiri arrived at Everton in 2016. That's why directors of football have left of their own accord because they didn't feel properly empowered before to do their jobs at Everton. It's not being the director of football. The direct, uh, Previous directors of football have suggested managerial targets and candidates to Everton. It's, it's, it's whether the hierarchy chooses to listen, and that's still the same question now. I was told that um, if West Ham sacked David Moyes, that Moyes would be a candidate by someone who's you know has sources, not not just a bloke in the pub. Mm. And um, is it is that viable? I think he would have been a candidate had he been sacked at that moment in time. The problem they've got now is that Moyes is almost emboldened. He, he, he beat Everton on Saturday. Looking at that from the outside, he's he's got a situation there where he's just won a game. Hopefully there's a bit of momentum generated there for him and that group of players. And he's been backed wholeheartedly by West Ham. You look at the business they did over, over the summer. They are trying to back him again right now, as, as far as I believe. And would David Moyes, for all his love of Everton Football Club, I think that persists, and that is is absolutely absolutely clear. At various times, he's wanted to come back. Would he jump from that sinking ship at West Ham to potentially a ship that even has sunk even further? I just don't think. I just don't think that makes much sense for him. Um, he, of course, he still has admirers. He still has connections at Everton. I think he. He will be discussed. I think he'll be spoken about. We'll see more reports about him. I think in certain circumstances, he may well, if he'd been unemployed, he almost certainly would have would have jumped at the prospect of coming back to Everton. But I think that that, that was made tougher by the result on Saturday, ironically, with him beating Lampard and Everton. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, I'm Adam Hurry, host of a unique football podcast, one of the top 20 football podcasts in Guatemala, a cult football podcast. No, actually... It's one of the most important football podcasts. Football Clichés, a product of nearly 20 years of obsessive research, is a podcast about the mundane and magical depths of the language of football, the curious and sometimes almost subliminal things that define the way we consume the modern game. At what age is a player eligible to roll back the years? When does a club's highly rated conveyor belt of talent turn into a fabled production line? How many types of goal-scoring header are there in the footballing vocabulary? Football Clichés doesn't just leave no stone unturned, it looks at every single stone and wonders what's the threshold for a stone to become a rock? but for football, obviously. Listen for your sins on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. He's been sacked. What? Frank's gone. Oh, well, unlucky. Hot off the press, Frank Lampard has been sacked. Do you think that's the right decision? You're kidding, you're kidding, seriously. Yeah, he's, he's gone. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's his fault. Who else is he going to get in? No, it's going to be the same thing, isn't it? Shots. Um... What, what can I say? I wasn't expecting it. Uh, I don't think many of the fans were neither. Let's move on to Lampard himself then. When he was in charge at Chelsea, Liam, what were the positive aspects of his management? Well, I think he obviously came in with the benefit of an immediate connection and goodwill with the supporters by virtue of who he was, but he built on that very intelligently in difficult circumstances in a summer where Chelsea couldn't sign players and they just lost their best player in Eden Hazard um, and the, the player that kind of defined the previous seven years. He built a new attacking identity that I think was was probably more, more effective than any attacking identity Chelsea have had since <laughs> with, uh, with Tammy Abraham and, and Mason Mount and these, these vibrant young players coalescing with you know veterans like Giroud and Willian Chelsea were, were genuinely a, a, an effective attacking team in the 2019-20 season and that's what that's a big part of why they got into the top 4 um they weren't a very good defensive team even then um but i think another thing that Lampard could point to at the time was that he didn't have much of Angolo Kanté uh so i think i think that first season in many respects was genuinely impressive because the circumstances were not favourable um, to get Chelsea into the top four and keep them stable. And 
enable them to do what subsequently made Lampard's job so much harder, which was um, to go out and spend the money they spent in the summer of 2020, that COVID summer when no other European clubs were spending. Um, they signed a load of players that, you know, they weren't necessarily Lampard signings. They were they were big, high-profile club signings. And then it became the Chelsea job as we're more, you know, used to seeing it uh, in the Abramovich era, which was high spending, super high expectations, no margin for error. Um, and once that became the job, it, it became a, a lot more difficult for Lampard. And, and it's worth remembering they, they were top of the league at the start of December, um, but things things declined very, very quickly in those final month to six weeks. And he had problems with the dressing room, obviously on the pitch. And, and, and it kind of, it became a different job. He, the, the job he was hired to do, he did well. And the job he got sacked from was, was a completely different one. Could you argue something similar at Everton? I, th- I think that, I think it's worth separating the job Lampard did last season from the one he did this time around. Last season, he was brought in in difficult circumstances with the players at rock bottom. And effectively, the brief was keep Everton up by hook or by crook. Eventually, he managed that by receding to a more conservative, pragmatic version of what he actually wanted to do initially. So kind of job done there. He galvanized the fans. He brought everyone together. Uh, The players kind of went into training and thought, I watched you on Sky Sports when I was a young kid growing up and you're Frank Lampard and I can learn from you. And even in the summer, players like Amadou Onana and James Tarkovsky had interest from elsewhere and Lampard was able to convince them through sheer force of will and personality and prestige to 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 convince them to snub others and, and join Everton. Where he failed was in moving Everton on and in trying to make them more expansive and push them up the table. He actually did, he did neither of those things, that they're in a worse situation than they were when he joined. And they looked to be more expansive, but ultimately ended up more flawed as a result. I'm still not entirely sure the group of players that he had at his disposal this season, even with the the, the ones that were brought in over the summer, were adequately equipped to play in the way he wanted to play. One of the examples we used in our big kind of piece on the sacking and his his tenure at Everton was with Connor Cody and James Tarkovsky wanting to drop really deep and defend the edge of the box. And the number eights, the two number eights and the 4-3-3 wanting to push high on the opposition box. And I I just saw Idrissa Gay, the 33-year-old Idrissa Gay, who had been at PSG in a side dominating the ball in the middle on his own in no man's land, struggling to snuff out those transitions. And that led to problems in both facets of play. They struggled to build the ball, but they also, as I said earlier, had had problems in transition. So I think the more expansive Everton became under Lampard, the more flawed they became. And it made the kind of his demise sadly inevitable. And we can hear actually from our tactics writer now, Ahmed Walid, uh, who has been writing about Everton's struggles on the pitch. So we asked him what Lampard's Everton struggled with. Away from the problems of the field, Frank Lampard's Everton have had huge problems in terms of creating chances in open play, conceding chances in open play, and also on defensive set pieces. 
And when we come back to the chances they're conceding in open play, there is a recurring theme throughout the season where once they lose the ball, they are so open on the defensive transition and the opponent has huge spaces which they can break into and then score the goal. This usually happens when Everton are 1-0 down and trying to get back into the game, especially late in the games. So we saw that against Aston Villa, Tottenham away, um, also against Leicester at home and lately in, in, in the West Ham game. So we saw in the West Ham game when Everton were trying to get back into the game and score the equaliser, Alex Iwobi uh, lost the ball in West Ham's half and then on the transition, the pace of uh, Jared Bowen and Mikel Antonio just beat Everton. So this problem in terms of defensive transition isn't their only issue, but it's a clear issue that has been happening since the beginning of the season. So, I mean, you you mentioned, Paddy, the defensive transition, and Liam, you mentioned the defensive struggles at Chelsea as well. How much... um, how much is he a coach on the training field from what you understand from from what you what you've heard at the respective clubs liam was was he was it every session for him was did he take control of just certain units did he rely on assistants to to do some of it how much was he a, was he on the pitch our understanding from particularly the early time at chelsea um was that for most of the week he would be one step back and that his coaches would be leading the drills themselves, but he would be watching everything. And then when it came towards the end of the week, leading up towards the match, that he would he would then take a step forward and lead the preparation, the actual match preparation, um, because he was keen for him to be the only voice when it came to actually setting up for games and, and for things not to be confused. Although obviously... I think his style at Chelsea, perhaps this continued at Everton, was was very collaborative with his coaches. He had a really tight knit group with with Jody Morris and Joe Edwards, um, and and Chris Jones that he trusted implicitly, and 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 everything would be a conversation. I think between them, but he he would delegate a lot, but he would be watching um, the exercises, and then towards the end of the week, he would he would take more charge himself. Uh, it was- Kind of similar at Everton, really. It's interesting Liam talked about the tight-knit group he had around him. Obviously, Jody Morris didn't come to Everton, but Joe Edwards was there. Ashley Cole joined Paul Clement as well. And Lampard would often refer to the London boys that had kind of moved up north, and they stuck very closely together in the kind of the South Manchester, Cheshire area. It did a lot of stuff together. They were collaborative. One of the th- one of the first things we, we started to hear when they joined was that they were kind of seen as a breath of fresh air inside the club by long-term staff because they wanted to engage. They wanted to buy into the ethos of the club. I don't think anybody could convince Lampard of of, of, of not doing that. In terms of the actual coaching, he, he was very hands-on. He would be around for a lot of sessions, whether he was leading them or not. A lot of stock was placed on the shoulders of Joe Edwards, his assistant manager, Ashley Cole would do a lot this season. Ashley Cole did a lot of the set plays, the work on set plays, both offensive and defensive. And then Paul Clement, obviously very experienced, vastly experienced, was there to observe. He took a step back over the summer, initially had been working on set pieces, but he just took the step back and was there to observe and kind of 
see what was going on and advise around the fringes. But I think it was very much Lampard chip. He was the one steering it. He had the old, the ultimate say, the decisive say. He worked with the director of football on transfers. He would suggest targets. He he wanted to be involved in that process. And I suppose a manager to some extent has to be involved in that if they're going to end up then using the players that come in further down the line. Like I say, I don't think any of this was for want of trying on Lampard's part. They were mm. hard workers. I remember being told after the 4-1 Carabao Cup defeat against Bournemouth in midweek, staff at Finch Farm were absolutely staggered at the training ground that he was in around 7 or 8am the next day after a long journey back overnight and he was kind of rolling his sleeves up and getting to work again. He wanted to make it work, he bought into the club. I just think it was with the implementation of how this was done, of, of, of how he looked to move the team on and the flaws that were in the team that kind of couldn't be overcome. He's managed three. I mean, actually, I, I was going to say two and then I decided to change it because Dar- Darby are a big club as well. He's managed three big clubs in English football, two of them in the Premier League, obviously. What should he do next, do you both think? But also, what do you think he wants to do next? Paddy? I mean, they may well be two very different things. He obviously took a lot of time after the dismissal at Chelsea to get back into football. Now, some of that was because he wanted time away himself. But as we know, he also was in the running for certain jobs that he didn't get as well. He's a football person. He wants to be in football to some extent. I just wonder now, having been seen to fail at Everton, even with the acknowledgement of how difficult a job it was, whether he would get the kind of job that he may feel he merits or he, he deserves at a Premier League level next time. It, it may well be the case, given the perception around the job at Everton and the perception around some of his other jobs, that he, he might have to almost drop down a rung and look to take charge of, of a club on the way up and almost guide them into the Premier League and, and do it that way. How long that takes as a process, I don't know. The indications we've kind of had since the sacking with that he kind of knew it was coming. I think by the end, as with every Everton manager, they're just drained by the whole process, the internal politics, the difficulties you have to overcome with Premier League's profits and sustainability rules. I think that really takes its toll, even for somebody who is, is kind of outwardly confident and kind of engaging like Lampard. So I, I think probably what comes is a bit of a brief break before he then plots his next step. But I think the next step, whether it's in punditry or in, in football, will be in the sphere of football. He, I don't think he can ever completely detach himself from that. And kind of even on holidays, we were getting reports of him kind of phoning the director of football to check on the progress of transfer targets or messaging his, his assistants over WhatsApp to talk about kind of how they could prepare for the, the season ahead. He, he just doesn't switch switch off from football at all, as I understand. Well, the thing I find fascinating about all of this is that this generation of ex-pros, Lampard, Gerard, Rooney, unlike the generations before them, they really, really don't need to do this. <laughs> 
they do not need mm. to be putting themselves through the, the stresses and strains of elite level coaching. Um, and so I think in that sense, you can say it's indicative of a real love of football, a real quite pure love of football. Um, and also with Lampard, we always got the sense that he has, just as he did as a player, a burning desire to prove himself. Um, and he always feels that people are doubting him. And and, it, and even if there aren't that many people doubting him, he'll, he'll focus on those voices. I think that's just the way he's he's wired. And he was really bruised, I think, by the way things ended at Chelsea. I think that was a shock to him. Um, it was certainly a, one of the more brutal Chelsea sackings that I've that I've covered. This Everton one seems to have been in, in, in different circumstances. And I think once you once you lose a job in a situation like this where you're 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 in charge of a team that is on a trajectory for the championship quite clearly that's where Everton were going if they didn't make a change it does become quite difficult i think to to make a case that your next job should be in the premier league um and i think that's going to be quite difficult for him so now now essentially the choice is how much does he still want to prove himself as a, as a coach? Because if he does, he he might have to, as Paddy says, you know, accept a job maybe back at maybe back at the level Derby were, um, and actually get a team promoted and, and and get a Premier League job that way, or or abroad, or abroad, or abroad. Absolutely. I mean, I know he's, I know he, I know there would be family reasons, and you know that that that's a that's a big jump if you have a young family, which he does, but. You look, you look at the clubs that he's managed and you would say, actually, you deserve a really stable, well-run club to be able to prove your worth as a, as a coach and a manager. And if that is in Holland or Belgium or Germany or France, then do you know what? Go, go and do that because the structure that is around some of these clubs is a is going to be a lot more stable than the major than the majority of ones in English football really that might be available to him. Yeah, and I think we see from Lampard's playing career that you know there were times at Chelsea where he's spoken about considering going to Inter to join Mourinho and and at the end of his career going to play in New York City. So he he he, he clearly sees himself as 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 someone who could go and live elsewhere and build build a life and build a career in another environment. Um, it's just whether he whether he wants to and, and of course it, it comes back to what the offers are and, and and whether they're whether they're tempting or not. Um, I would expect probably next to see him, you know, back in the pundit studio because I think he, he did that a fair bit during his time between Chelsea and Everton as well, because it's quite a good way to remind people that you're still around and still in the market. Um as as much as anything, so I think we might we might get a, more of an indication of his intentions the next time he's he's in a BT or Sky Sports studio, or BBC Liam as well, just to throw or that BBC in. of course. <laughs> uh, right, uh, Liam uh, Paddy, thank you. I imagine you've got a, few, a busy few days ahead, have you, Paddy? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Don't think you can, don't think you can turn your phone off for a while. No. Uh, right, subscribe to the Athletic for just a pound ninety nine a month for a year at theathletic.com slash football pod uh, and we'll be back with another episode for you tomorrow afternoon the athletic